It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, October 13th, 2009. All right, today is going to be an interesting program. Let's see here. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to have to cut anything. I I didn't have time to over prepare. <laughs> yeah, see, that's the thing, you know. Sometimes you can put too much salt in a stew. You know what I mean? And sometimes you can't. You don't put enough. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Um, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. Um, uh, biblical illiteracy it leaves you completely defenseless against heresy. That, that that might become a new slogan. I was a poet and I didn't even know. That's right. Biblical illiteracy leaves you defenseless against heresy. Almost sounds poetic. It's true. And uh, and so what do we do here? We compare what people say in the name of God to the word of God. And when it doesn't jive, when there is a disconnect, uh, when the what the person is saying sounds pious, sounds almost biblical. I mean, they're using words like God, Jesus, love things like that and uh, and it sounds christian but uh, their conclusions contradict what god's word says even when they sound pious and they're dressed up in words like god jesus and love uh, then we have to reject those ideas because they contradict the clear teachings of scripture god god does not have a divided mind and the bible does not contradict itself it is truth all inspired through the holy spirit across the millennium and uh, we can trust it. Why? Because Jesus himself put his stamp of approval upon God's word and uh, claimed it to be none other than God's word and claimed it to be true. And how do we know Jesus knew what he was talking about? Real simple. He rose from the dead three days after he was crucified on Pontius Pilate, proving his uh, claim to being the one true God in human flesh. So uh, that's that's how we know that's true. All right. Looking at today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, okay, we're going to do a little bit of email. I haven't been able to get to email in a while, and uh, today, uh, considering my limited ability for program prep, uh, it uh, this is definitely a good day for some email. I've It's been backing up, and so i got two emails as well as one comment on my Facebook wall that we're going to be talking about today. I've got a, a great quote from uh, Scott Diekman's uh, uh, blog called Great Numbers Do Not Make the Church. And then our news today, uh, got two news stories. Uh, Dr. Rowan Williams, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, is urging families to grow their own food. <laughs> yeah, I am. Oh, man. Uh, it sounds like Y2K, right? What, we got to grow our own food? Well, we'll, we'll take a look at what uh, the the man we lovingly refer to as Captain Obvious uh, here at Fighting for the Faith, what he's talking about. And then I wanted to comment on this. I didn't do it yesterday, but Conservapedia seeks to eliminate liberal bias from the Bible. We're going to weigh in on that. And then hopefully we'll get to Romans chapter 9 today in our Bible study. And uh, we will then, uh, for, rather than doing a sermon review, to, uh, what we're going to do today is uh, I'm going to be playing uh, the audio from the lecture that Bob DeWay and myself tag-teamed on. We, we, gave, we co-taught his adult Sunday school class 
at uh, Twin City Fellowship up there in uh, in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, actually, it's in, it's in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. And so uh, we're going to be playing that lecture today because I think it, 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 it a good another good resource that discusses the emergent church. And uh, it, it's done in a way that I, I think covers the primary categories of uh, what needs to be discussed there. And it is different than uh, my radio interviews with him. So uh, that's going to f- uh, balance out the rest of the program. So feel free to get comfortable. There's no problem in getting comfortable. Uh, if uh, weather permits, uh, if you're in the frozen north, uh, fuzzy bunny slippers are absolutely in. I mean, <laughs> it's, yeah, looking at the uh, the weather forecast for the frozen north, um, yeah, in fact, two layers of funny buzz, fuzzy bunny slippers may be in order if you're in the frozen north. And uh, again, if you're in a warm weather region, you know, we have discovered, uh, the Fighting for the Faith research team has discovered that uh, wearing fuzzy bunny slippers in warm weather causes your feet to sweat, which actually detracts from the the, the positive experience that uh, that is listening to Fighting for the Faith. So we uh, we are against that, and of course we do not have a problem if you want to enjoy enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith. And just so you know, I do not enjoy adult beverages while recording and or uh, uh, while doing Fighting for the Faith. Um, you know, but if you want to listen to uh, if you want to Enjoy an adult beverage while listening. We do not have a problem with that. Again, the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness, not just drinking. Just want to let you know that. That's the, that's the biblical prohibition. Now, just like adultery is a sin, however, sex within marriage, not a sin. The biblical prohibition is not against sex. It's against the abuse of sex. The biblical prohibition against alcohol is not the use of alcohol, but the abuse of alcohol. So that's uh, that's the take that we have here at Fighting for the Faith, and I just want to let you know that. All right, we're going to dive into email. And uh, let's see, first one is from Joe in Richland, Washington. And uh, this uh, the email is entitled, Law and Gospel with Regard to Children. Fantastic email, by the way. Um, something. So this is uh, Joe speaking. He says, something really got my ears perked up on the uh, September 30 podcast. You read an email from Karen about the song Obedience. Well, like her, I'm in pretty solid Baptist church, and, and I've heard the song Obedience sung. Like Karen's church, mine has a solid pastoral sa- staff that preaches Christ crucified, forgiveness of sins in Christ, etc., etc., to tell you the truth, the song just seemed like it was placing obedience in the context of the fruit of the Spirit. But, now I'm not so sure about that. I have an eight-year-old who is bright and is thirsty for God's Word, so my wife and I do as much as we can to encourage her to grow in the knowledge of Christ. And uh, keep, in, keep in mind, Joe, that's your job to, uh, you, you, are the, uh, you are the head catechetical guy there in your family. Uh, we continue as a family. As a family, we're involved in various ministries at our church, two hundred something strong uh, member church. We study God's word at home and at church, and so on. Good, good, good. In response to Karen's concern of the song, you said something that sent chills down my spine. No, not the Rob Bell Eastern mystical tingly thingies. <laughs> I am so glad that you didn't have. Uh, you didn't experience God via the Lectio Divina. Anyway, we continue. You totally made me stop my treadmill and think, literally, I was stopped in my tracks. You said that the song had no gospel in it. 
crud. Why didn't I see that? I don't want my kid to grow up and walk in error because of bad teaching. In my, I've been noticing some stuff here and there that I plan on uh, talking to the pastors about, but nothing major so far. This this has, uh, has me thinking more. You talk a lot about the need for law and gospel. I completely agree. This isn't a rebuttal letter after all. Uh, I guess I'm I'm stuck trying to figure out, where is my thinking stumbling? I should have seen the lack of gospel in that song. So in trying to uh, be a better follower of our Lord and a better, better parent to my daughter, I have questions for you. As an adult that's been saved for a good while, full of, uh, full metal jacket style law preaching had once caused me to almost walk away from the faith, feeling a constant uh, feeling of unworthiness, guilt, sadness, that I couldn't even be good enough. I, I don't want her going through that. How do you as a parent lay down a solid foundation in terms of helping a child understand A, the basic concept of law and gospel, uh, B, why both have to be in something at the same time, hope that make, uh, hope that makes sense, and how do you as a parent build on that? Um, as always, I know you're super busy, so I thank you for reading this. Uh, God be with you and your family in Christ, Joe in uh, Richland, Washington. Okay, now Joe. I normally don't dispense parenting advice here at Fighting for the Faith. I, I am not James Dobson, but um, at the risk of, uh, keep this in mind, um, since you didn't have to pay for the advice, uh, you could take it or leave it. I mean, <laughs> I, I will not be writing a parenting book when it comes to law and gospel. However, uh, having three children, two of them adult, adults now, and uh, one uh, one still coming up through the ranks, um, there are some things that I have found helpful in this regard. First of all, um, you, you, I want to come back to what you were talking about, how uh, you felt like you should have noticed that, that uh, the gospel was completely missing from the song. Um, something to keep in mind. When somebody preaches the law, many times you will say, yep, that's right, yep, that's right, yeah, that's spot on. And the reason why you say that. Uh, or you'll think that, is because uh, Romans chapter 1 makes it clear that the law of God is written on our hearts. Okay, The gospel, on the other hand, isn't. The gospel is an alien message, if you would, that only comes to us through the revealed word and those who are proclaiming the revealed word of God. So uh, this is one of the reasons why there is no religion out there on the planet that proclaims the gospel except for Christianity. Um, you won't find it in ancient Egyptian religion. You will not find it in, uh, in the ancient re- religions of the Greeks, of the Romans, uh, the, uh, North American Plains Indians, uh, the Chinese, um, the, uh, uh, the people in, in the in-between lands between Europe and Asia. You, uh, you won't find it down in the Congo. You will not even find it in the most remotest of, uh, islands, uh, in the Solomon Island chain. Uh, among any of the peoples. The gospel is an alien message. And so here's the deal. Training training in law and gospel and thinking in lines of law and gospel requires, um, I would say, diligence in that sense to, uh, to uh, be in God's word and to constantly be teasing it out. Now, um, the basic concept of law and gospel is a couple of good ways to help your children understand it. And part of it is, is is you on a daily basis reading and uh, and basically teasing it out of God's word. So it's part of your daily uh, devotional time as a family. You're reading in God's word, and as you come, you know, as you're reading these passages, whether you're in the Old Testament or New Testament, finding how to tease out law and gospel in both those passages. Now, there are some passages in Scripture that 
um, that are pure law. I mean, like, let's say, for instance, you're in you're in parts of Deuteronomy or you're in parts of Leviticus, and you and you know and you're you're up on animal sacrifice, the Yom Kippur, and and uh, the different uh, wa- you know wave offerings, grain offerings, and stuff like that. Well, that's all law. So the question is, how do you get to gospel from that? Well, keep in mind uh, that the gospel, you know, Christ and Him crucified for our sins, is the overarching plot of the Bible. So what you can do in a, in a, in a text that deals only with the law, uh, the way you would teach it to your child is to basically say, now look at all of the things that God requires, and you know, look how seriously God takes our sin. It requires animal sacrifices, all of these different things, and just you know, help bring that to life. And say all of these sacrifices here in the in, in in this all law passage are pointing us to the one true sacrifice for our sins. That's Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. So you always want to be doing that. And and as you build on that foundation, then you, what you want to do is ask your children questions. You know, so what well what you can do in that case is you can say, all right, here we are in this passage. What's the law part of it? What you know? What you know? What what is this telling us we need to do? And understand. There are, there are three uses of the law. Uh, one is a curb against sin in society. We thank God for that so that we don't have people beating up on us, stealing our stuff, and taking our women and children. Um, that's lawlessness for sure. Uh, the second use is the primary use to show us our sin. And the third use is to show us what a good work is. Okay, So um, you know, we always preach law and gospel and understand third use of the law is only for Christians. And so... Um, what, what you want to do is you you bring law in. You can basically, what is the law in this? What is God telling us we need to do? And then you ask the question, do you do this? And you say, and, and you well, no, I don't do it very well. And get your kids to learn how to confess their sins before God using second use. Okay, then immediately you want to show, okay, well, but what's the gospel say? And if the gospel is not overtly present in, in the particular segment of scripture that you're reading, again, appeal to the overarching gospel of the entire Bible. That being the case, you know, but, you know, okay, so you, you know, when you bring law and gospel in and you're, and you're catechizing in a questioning kind of format, training your kids to think in this ways. And then the other thing is, is that, um, listen, I, I'm not saying that you, you have, um, a, a disobedient child. Um, however, having, I have three children of my own. One of the things I've learned about kids is, um, I don't have to teach them how to sin. It's just something I've noticed. And uh, as a result of that, um, if your uh, child or children are anything like every other child on the planet, uh, then they're going to sin and they're going to there's going to be some whoppers that are just going to absolutely send you for a loop. When that happens, you have an opportunity now to practice long gospel. And the way you practice that goes something along the lines of you, you've caught them in a sin. OK, it could be disobedience, talking back. Uh, you know, what, however you want to do it. So, the, and understand what you're doing here is you're going to be doing long gospel. Never say to your child, well, that's okay. No. And, uh, instead, um, it, this is a good time to say, okay, you've done this. Okay. Let's take a look at God's law. Let's look at the 10 commandments. What, what commandments have you broken? And at that point, don't let your kid off the, uh, off the hook easy. Um, it's you know part of puni- part of the punishment that I think is is a good thing for children as far as training them up is not just you know to pull out the belt and and be done with it. My kids would much rather uh, have uh, 
have me, uh, you know, just spank them and be done with it because they they got they got video games to play and things to do or whatever. Uh, it, but instead, sitting down and actually re- requiring them to think through and talk about what they've done, whoa, that's a completely different kind of punishment. You know, talking to me, you can imagine that what a punishment that is. But uh, the idea here is is that okay. Okay, you did this. This is the commandment that you've broken. So not only did you disobey me and your mother, your parents, but by doing this, you've also disobeyed God. And discuss the severity of that. Discuss the consequences of that. Discuss God's wrath and things like that. And then bring it back to the gospel and say, because here's the deal. Um, it's you know, Where's the but? The, where is the but? Okay, you've sinned, but, or is it, well, God forgives you, but, okay, whichever, wherever you put the but, it, you know, the but always erases what's in front of it. So you want to make sure that you are, you're doing law and gospel in such a way that the but always follows sin, so that the sins are the things that are wiped away by the cross. And so, uh, after you, you, you take them through the law and the severity of it, and, and, and really drive home the point that they have transgressed God's holy law, then the but has to come. But Christ died for your sins. And so uh, what you want to do is you want to apply the gospel in such a way that it's specific to the transgression that your child has done. Then, 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 and say, and also, I forgive you. And so you don't ever tell a kid, oh, that's okay. Instead, you tell the kid, I forgive you. Forgiveness acknowledges that the transgression that has occurred and absolves it, not saying that it's okay, but that it's forgiven. And that's, and so the idea here is, is that our parenting then looks like God's parenting of us, calling us to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, of us understanding what we've transgressed and then also, um, it, that Christ has died for our sins. And so, and, and now at that point, you absolutely forgive your child and on top of it, understand just like in real life, sometimes, uh, you know, just because you've been forgiven doesn't mean that there are not earthly consequences. You, you, you pick an appropriate earthly consequence, uh, to help reinforce that, you know, uh, the child in law and gospel. Does, does that make sense? And so that's really the idea here is, is that, um, so law and gospel then really flavors all of your parenting from your catechesis to your Bible time to, um, you know, to you, you know, how you tell them stories in the Bible to even how you discipline. And then what happens is, is that over and again, they're hearing law and gospel, law and gospel, law and gospel. And that get and that gets ingrained. And what happens is, is then when they get into a situation, say they decide to go visit a friend's church that's gone off the deep end and they're going to hear only the law and they're going to go, that's not right. There's no gospel there. And so what happens is as you instruct them and bring them up in law and gospel, that gets reinforced. It's so, it's uh, funny to me um, how many times when I'm doing a prep, uh, uh, program prep here for Fighting on the Faith, fi- fi- can't even say the own, the own name of my program. <clears throat> Maybe I should enjoy an adult beverage. It might actually loosen me up today. Anyway, uh, many times when I'm preparing for Fighting for the Faith, um, you all know that I do a lot of uh, sermon reviews here at Fighting for the Faith, and so as I'm preparing, sometimes I, you know, I've got a sermon playing in the background while I'm doing production work. You know, I'm trying to screen something and say, is this really the thing I want to bring onto the air today? 
And both my son now he's gone. He's in the Navy. Um, however, I still have my two daughters here and one or the other of my daughters will be passing by and they'll go, what is that? And they'll just hear a segment of it and they'll say, that was terrible. Where's the gospel, dad? That was just, that's just wrong. And so, you know, (laughs) it's very, very comforting to see, uh, you know, with my children years and years and years of, of Bible catechesis, of Bible time, as well as uh, a discipline that that also works via law and gospel, really taking root in their life and seeing the Holy Spirit molding them and shaping them into uh, into fine, fine uh, young Christian women. And those of you who are interested in uh, working on an arranged marriage, I'm sure that we can come up with something depending on the size of the dowry. <laughs> I hope my daughters didn't hear that. All right, uh, let's see here. Uh, email number two. I hope that answers your question, though, Joe. That's really those. That that's just some practical advice. Again, keep in mind, I don't normally do parenting advice here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, and again, it was free. You know, I'm not Dr. Laura, and uh, it's it's worth what you paid for it. So there you go. All right, uh, email here. I'm going to probably start this one on this side of the break, and I might end up uh, finishing on the other. It just depends. Uh, this one is from Tracy, and she's from Ongar in uh, England, which is 20 miles east of London. She says, Dear Captain Chris, is that like Captain Crunch? Uh, anyway, uh, this is crew member Smith uh, reporting from across the pond. I know you get hundreds of emails, and I, although I had decided not to bother you with another one from me, by the way, it is never a bother when somebody sends me an email. I read all of my emails. I truly do um, read all of them. However, I am based on the amount of emails that I get, there is no way that I can respond to the vast majority of them. I know some of you all out there, uh, would love it if I could respond, but I just physically do not have the, uh, the ability to do that. But, uh, but it is not a bother receiving emails from you all. Uh, she continues, I had just, I just had to connect with you as I've been working my way through the past podcast of Fighting for the Faith, playing catch-up. That's okay. Everyone plays catch-up with Fighting for the Faith. I've been listening for a couple months now and finally got to, t- uh, to the talk entitled The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. I cannot thank you enough for playing this talk. That was actually by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. It was a defining moment for me when all the things that you had been saying in months and months of previous podcasts about law, gospel, law finally solidified in my mind and took root. It took some time for what you were saying to sink in and undo my existing mental programming. 20 years of law, gospel, law cannot be deconstructed with one simple lesson. At least it couldn't for me. And that's okay. Although I had been a Christian since 1989, I was still oppressed by the law due to the teaching I received. If I'm being honest, which I've only just dared to do, I secretly hated passages like Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, and the parable of the talents, because deep down, I only, I really identified with the goats and the wicked servant, and I couldn't see how Jesus could ever be even moderately content with me, let alone pleased or even rejoice over me. I got to pause there for a second, Tracy. I know exactly what you're talking about. I languished under legalistic Christian preaching for years in the Nazarene church. And see, when you only, when you do law, gospel law, you're training people to only see the law and not the exciting, ridiculously surprising good news of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and that we are pleasing to God because of what Christ has done for us. I know exactly what you're talking about. 
she continues, all of the preaching I ever heard on these passages um, thumped me hard and eventually broke me to the point of ruining my health. Literally, I'm chronically debilitated and semi-bedridden. Whatever we do under the law, and, and I was working, 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 working from 6 a.m. to 1 a.m. on most days, it's never enough. That's right. You, how do you know when you've done enough of the law? Because remember, be ye perfect is the standard of the law. There's always something else we're not doing, let alone the sins. Couldn't even think about those. All I felt was guilt, 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 guilt for being wicked, for being a wicked and lazy servant. But, yes, let's erase all of that good riddance. (laughs) That's right, where's the but? Our blessed Lord, in his mercy, allowed the law to break me in order that I might be stopped and come to a knowledge of true saving faith. Like the good shepherd he is, he led me to good pasture, and I finally get it. I get the good news, and oh, what good news it really is. I'm free, free from slavery and bondage, guilt and shame. I can do the things I want to do because I want to do them and not because I have to do them. I have true Christian liberty. I can now love the Lord properly because the guilt no longer gets in the way. I have joy because at least at last I can believe that he loves me and isn't frowning at me in disappointment. This is real joy. I can finally see that even though I am semi-bedridden, it makes no difference because I am a good and faithful servant, not by anything I do, but because that's what Jesus was and is. I absolutely love being one of his sheep. I can't thank you enough for your ministry and for being the instrument that God used to set me free. As I was listening to Dr. Rosenblatt's talk, I completely identified with the Christians he described who find they can no longer go to church. I am semi-bedridden, and that has been my excuse for not going. But it's not the real reason. Until now, however, I have been unwilling to face the fact that even if I were well, I just couldn't go anymore. Now I know why. It's not because I don't love the body of Christ and I'm being disobedient, as I have heard taught so many times from the pulpit. It's because I've been thumped by the blows of the law so severely that I simply cannot risk any more beatings. I just can't. Call it a self-defense reflex if you like, but I just can't go through that anymore. I feel safe when listening to the bad and the ugly sermons you you broadcast only because you are there to point out the errors. I still feel myself flinching from the pounding which these wolves threaten to inflict upon me, but you always deflect the blows by pointing out the truth that giving and giving me the gospel. Thank you so much. I'm still not good at doing this discernment for myself. Perhaps it because it's because I'm a woman. I don't think women are very good at discernment. That's why a lot of churches uh, where there's unbalanced teaching, at least the law, the ones I've been in, have far more women in them than men. Or perhaps it's because I'm ill. I don't know. But I do know I'm still vulnerable to law, gospel, law type preaching and need to be protected from it. Therefore, I have been both pleased and honored to sign up to be a member of your crew. Now, I'm not reading that because I'm telling you all you need to do that. I have an intercessory ministry here with my adult children and future son-in-law, and I want you to know that we love to serve the body of Christ and you by name in particular, by interceding for you and your ministry. Wow. I got to pause there. I That's the thing. 
th- that that just means so much to me. And you're right, Tracy. You have an intercessory ministry. And I am so honored that you would be praying for me on a daily basis in what we're doing here. Anyway, i got to continue. We also pray for the enemies of the gospel, that they might repent and enter into the joy that we found in hearing and believing its true message. Now, Captain, as a crew member, alert special crew member privileges being sought, I would ask you to give serious consideration to my suggestion in a previous email that you have donut buttons (laughs) as well as donate. A donut button and crew member buttons on your website. You could link it uh, to a gospel tweet or a gospel suite, lol. For those of us who get a, a bit uh, peckish, that's British English word meaning moderately hungry. If this term is unfamiliar to you in the U.S., it, it is. Uh, while we're uh, while we're web surfing, you never know when one of your crew might ingest some emergent bitterness by accident and need an instant palate cleanser. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Seriously, though, once again, thank you so much for what you do. You don't know how much our Lord has blessed me and my family through your faithful service, or perhaps you do. I believe you've been uh, through this yourself, haven't you? I have. Anyway, um, Tracy, thank you so much for uh, your email. And I got to tell you, it is an honor to be able to serve you this way day in and day out here at Fighting for the Faith, and uh, your email is very, very humbling and very well written. And uh, again, thank you very much for your prayers. All right, we are up on our first break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to, uh, we're going to an- I'm going to answer one more uh, email. This comes via my Facebook wall, and uh, then we've got news from Dr. Roland Williams there, out there in uh, Great Britain. He's urging families to grow their own food. We'll talk about that. And then I'm going to weigh in on this. Conservapedia seeks to eliminate liberal bias from the Bible. And uh, and then uh, when we get into hour number two, we've got Bob DeWay's and I's co-lecture on the emergent church that I'll be playing. And this was from this past Sunday at uh, Twin City Fellowship there in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, Minnesota. And uh, and uh, it's going to be a fine lecture, so you definitely do not want to uh, miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can uh, follow me on Twitter. My name there again is pirate Christian. Uh, we'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church. 
So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put dang. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance and an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody, uh, expects, uh, expects, no, nobody expects the, um, purpose driven, Inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do, chief ex- weapons are. our chief weapons are, um, purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay, and- okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Uh, our chief weapons are purpose, blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with A Skeleton in God's Closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. Da, 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 da. 
are back. Warning. Listening to this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor's not giving you the gospel. That's right. You need to hear about the forgiveness of sins. You're thinking, well, wait, wait, come on. I heard about the forgiveness of sins 20 years ago when I made a decision for Jesus at a Billy Graham concert. Actually, uh, well, not concert, crusade. Cru- yeah, he doesn't do concerts. It's not- no, I, that does not listen. It's listen. When was the last time you told your your husband or wife that you loved them? Uh, you know, it, if you were to, I guarantee, you, try this out, and in uh, what happened, you know, actually, maybe this is not good. We all know what would happen, so don't try this out. But pretend for a second, along with me, for a second. Um, if you decided that you were going to uh, just kind of withhold telling your spouse uh, that you loved him or her on, uh, let's say, for a month. Let's say you just decide to go cold turkey for the next 30 days. You're not going to tell your wife or your husband that you love them. And uh, what do you think would happen? Uh, you, <laughs> I don't think things would be going well. I just, I'm just saying. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, I think th- things would go badly for you. Your, your spouse would probably break down and go, all right, what gives? Why are you angry at me? Uh, what did I do wrong? You never say you love me. Okay, that that's what that's one possible highly believable outcome. Well, the same occurs here. Um, if if you never hear the good news that Christ died for your sins and that God is your gracious and loving Father and your sins are forgiven, if you if you're not hearing that, you're probably thinking God's up there going, hmm 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 hmm. Yep, I'm angry at that guy or gal. I'm I'm just really angry. They can't seem to get their act together, right? So you know, it's it's not that the gospel is just the way, the only way that God says that He loves us, but it's a very, very, very important way, and a way that you need to hear practically daily. And the reason why is well, because you sin daily. Yeah, if you're saying, "Oh, I didn't sin yesterday," no, trust me. Uh, come on the air, send me your phone number. I'll interview you, and by the end of it, we'll all be pretty clear that you. Uh, yeah, you sinned. Anyway, so that's just something to say there. All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means your financial support is vital. In fact, I say that all the time. It's like uh, completely mandatory now. Um, yeah, many of you, I've been talking now for, about this for about a week and a half. Uh, we have a generous contributor here at Fighting for the Faith who's been helping to underwrite Fighting for the Faith as well as Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, their generous contribution will be coming to an end in February of uh, 2010, which means that uh, w- uh, what I'm, what I think is a good idea, and, and so far it's panning out okay. We're, you know, I think we're on track here. Is uh, we're calling upon 1,000 of our listeners to contribute a mere six dollars and ninety-five cents a month. Um, six dollars and ninety-five cents is nothing. It really is nothing. We're we're talking about two mochas at Starbucks, a extra value meal at McDonald's or uh, Burger King. That's what you know. It, it from your point of view, uh, six dollars and ninety-five cents is not going to break the bank. However, that six dollars and ninety-five cents means the world to Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith, because when we get to a thousand listeners who have signed up for the Pirate Christian Radio crew and are having $6.95 a month automatically deducted from their accounts in order to support PCR and Fighting for the Faith, then we guarantee on a monthly basis that we at least meet our minimum expenses every month. 
And that is a vital, vital thing to have happen so that uh, we can continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you well into next year and on into the years to come, as long as God gives us breath and the ability to continue broadcasting. So um, it's vitally important. And so uh, I'm asking you now, join the crew. Join the crew. Come join the Pirate Christian Radio crew. And, yes, we're working on perks. I hope to unveil those soon. However, I I hope that's not the only reason why you would do it. Um, so uh, you can join the Pirate Christian Radio crew by visiting fightingforthefaith.com. That's fightingforthefaith.com. When you arrive there, on the homepage, you will see a friendly yellow button that says Join Our Crew. Click on it go to, and fill out the online secure form that uh, sets it up so that uh, a recurring monthly b- uh, charge comes off of your account of $6.95. And uh, your support then uh, keeps us going. Now, uh, those of you who have asked and uh, you know, w- would like to contribute above and beyond that, we still have our friendly yellow donate button there, which allows you to securely send in a larger contributions. And again, I am humbled by all of those uh, of you who have done that, and I thank you I- immensely. So join our crew. You can do so at fightingforthefaith.com. Now, if you'd like to send in your your contribution, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith and po- send that along to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along here. On my Facebook wall, uh, there's a gentleman who has uh, shown up. I've, I've actually had a couple of, uh, I think, uh, Twitter uh, exchanges with uh, James and uh, James uh, has uh, left a co- uh, basically left a uh, a question for me, and I, I, it sounds like theologically James and I are uh, it, we're not in the same camp, but that's okay. He's absolutely welcome, James. You're absolutely welcome to uh, comment on my Facebook wall. And uh, generally, I only consider it abuse when you uh, leave uh, uh, requests for me to babysit your children. That 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 kind of crosses a line with me, but that's a different story. Uh, so James writes, he says, I would be interested in hearing a bit about the relationship of political conservatism and theological conservatism. It was one of the things that struck me during our last election. Much of my LCMS church is av- avowedly much farther from the center than I am. Well, maybe he's in the same camp. And we know well your feelings about liberals, both theologically and politically. And yet they seem to, uh, to, to me like significantly different beasts, united only by having the same label applied to them. One could be politically liberal or conservative and have equal problems uh, being Christian. I know uh, Pastor Wilkin has had pro-life Democrats on uh, the Issues Etc. program, and last week he and Pastor Whedon were saying the church does not come together because it's like-minded. So what's the deal? So what's the relation? Okay, now this is a fantastic question. Now, I'm going to first of all stop, talk about the nature of politics, at least politics here in the United States. I, I, I can't speak to it. Uh, politics across the pond, although there are some similarities, or even politics in Australia or New Zealand or other other republics around. But in the United States, um, I, and I, I actually used to be uh, the, uh, the the treasurer for the Republican Central Committee out, out in uh, in uh, the Riverside, San Bernardino County. I represent, I think, California 43rd and 44th uh, con- congressional districts. And this was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But um, political parties are not monolithic, in, at least in working on the inside of the Republican Party, as I did uh, for a few years. Um, there's a lot of infighting that goes on in, in you know within a political party, and the, the idea is to put out a platform, and, and that platform has made up of different planks. And so you might have a plank regarding health reform, health care reform. You might have a plank regarding 
uh, regarding uh, life issues as abortion. You might have a plank regarding, uh, you know, agricultural issues, the whole, the whole spectrum. And generally speaking, in the United States, uh, the Democrats represent a more socialist, and I'm, I'm, they're not pure socialist, but a more socialist way of of attacking problems. And and people would say that's more of a big government thing. It's the idea of wealth redistribution. You you take in money and you redistribute the wealth from the uh, from the producers to those who, for whatever reason, you know maybe society is against them or they've had you know they just didn't have the up the same breaks as uh, other people and try to redistribute the wealth in such a way that it makes a more uh, the idea is a more egalitarian or equal playing field the republican party for the most part represents um not laissez-faire capitalism but um basically a form of capitalism that's regulated you know regulated to a t you know not to a t but to a degree and so uh, th- that's one way of looking at the uh, the uh, economy. And then on their platform, they keep fighting about it. You know, election after election is their view on life issues and th- and stuff like that. So um, when it comes to and, and this is you know, conservative Christians, and and I got to tell you, I am just not a fan of the term conservative. I don't call myself a conservative. I say I'm a confessional Lutheran. And what I mean by that is is that. I, you know, I subscribe to the Confessions of the Lutheran Church as found in the Book of Concord. And now I am not defending uh, the way we've done things just because that's the way we've done things forever and ever. Amen. I think that's kind of the idea behind conservatism is that people think it's just people defending the status quo or the way we've always done things because that's the way we've always done them. And I think that's a wrong way of looking at it. However, as a confessional Lutheran, um, there are certain planks within different parties that uh, make it difficult for me to support one party or another, and at times I find myself at odds with both, okay? Because ultimately my allegiance is to God's word and to the truth. And uh, as a Christian, as a confessional Lutheran, I am called to, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, uh, as a representative of the kingdom of God, an ambassador of the kingdom of God to both Republicans and Democrats. And so that being the case, um, the, the, the general thinking, though, is is that th- th- people who are theologically confessional or theologically conservative, their viewpoints, uh, which are derived from Scripture, more closely are are seen or embraced or at least have a voice in uh, in the Republican Party. Now, that's not exactly true. Believe me, I've seen it from the inside, the fighting that goes on regarding these issues. And um, but so the connection between the two, it, it, generally speaking, is is that uh, you know for the most part, when you have a, a Republican in uh, in power, Republicans in power, they're they're defending life. They're against uh, basically legalized robbery of people and and, and things like that. Um, and so there's an affinity, you know, for that lends itself towards that particular political party. That is not to say that uh, Christians should not be thinking critically when it comes to whichever party they think best represents a more biblical or Christian worldview. Um, there is plenty of stuff that uh, going on in uh, the Republican Party that Christians should not be agreeing with and should be saying, no, that's wrong. And if you're gonna if you're gonna work within that political party, and uh, be a part of it, um, you might want to consider uh, speaking out against some of those issues. 
Um, now, when it comes to the Democrats, historically, the Democrats really kind of represent that uh, almost a neo-Marxist view. And um, and so economically, I have a problem with their platform. And I definitely have a problem with the fact that they are in favor of murdering unborn children. It, uh, that's exactly what it is. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say, oh, no, 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 no. They're just pro-choice. No, choice is, has nothing to do with it. It has to do with whether or not uh, you know you are in favor of legalizing uh, murder. That's what abortion is. You know, as a Christian, I can take no other view. And so, you know, I find I find myself many times viscerally at odds with platform uh, with planks in the platform of the Democratic Party. Now, that's not to say that the Democratic Party is without merit, and that that and that some of the things that they are proclaiming and some of the things they are defending are not things that I could not that I could not and should not proclaim and defend. And so. That being said, keep in mind the nature of politics. When politics works well in a Republican system, and I'm not talking about a party here, I'm talking about Republicanism, um, it works best on compromise. So the two-party system, the way it's currently set up, if you really want things to work well, it's going to work via compromise. And that's where it gets dicey for Christians because they want their politicians to hold a hard line, yet politically... Uh, the system is designed in such a way that uh, where there is maximum compromise, you have maximum success in getting uh, legislation pushed push through. So that, again, lends itself to, let's say, disappointment uh, on the part of uh, confessing Christians uh, because there are certain things that we, fe- that we can't compromise on, and yet our entire political system is built on compromise. So what does that mean? We as Christians got to keep in mind our allegiance is to the kingdom of God, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We have joint uh, citizenship here on earth as well as uh, in the kingdom of God. And so uh, the planet, you know, the planet and the government still needs to run. And so it's it's perfectly fine for Christians to get involved in politics and they should. And um, it's good that Christians wrestle with these issues. And one of the things that's missing right now politically are people who are well-versed and well-understood in the issues and take principled approaches to it, even if that principle makes it so that they come at odds with the party that they particularly like or maybe even a part of. Truth is true, regardless of which party is proclaiming it. So... Anyway, I hope that answers your question, James. But uh, but the reason why there is a, there is an affinity between conservative uh, Christians and the, like the conservative party really comes down to the fact that uh, within the Republican Party, Christians still have a voice regarding issues that are definitely uh, on the hearts and minds of those who are in the scriptures. And uh, it's true also of the Democratic Party. However, much of that is reflected in, I would consider it kind of a twisted view of scripture. And that's what we're seeing in the emergence and uh, mainline liberals. So, all right, moving along here. This is a crazy story. And it it actually follows very well on the heels of uh, (laughs) what we just heard and uh let me let me pull up our vintage news music so that i can uh, i can get this out there properly from the telegraph in the uk dr rowan williams archbishop of canterbury urges families to grow their own food <laughs> i had no idea that this was a christian thing um, for you Christians out there listening in the UK, uh, listen up. Uh, the uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury wants you to grow your own food. 
Who wrote this? Hang on a second here. Um, I don't. Do I have a byline on this one? Nope, I don't have a byline on it. Oh, that's gross. There's a picture of some guy eating a spider. Anyway, sorry. Um, Dr. Roland Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, has urged families to tackle climate change by growing fruit and vegetables in their gardens and allotments instead of buying produce flown thousands of miles. Okay, now, for those of you progressive liberals out there, we've got a problem. I'll explain it in a second. Let me continue reading. He said people must change their shopping habits and adjust their diets to the seasons and eat only food that can be grown at home. The carbon footprint of peas from Kenya and other air-freighted food was too high and families should not assume that all types of food would be available through the year, he said. Dr. Williams also called for more land to be set aside for allotments to encourage people to connect with what they eat and move away from consumer-driven uh, consumer lifestyle. In an interview with the Times, he, he said families should get in touch with the natural rhythms of the seasons and the fact that the earth turns things uh, grow here and not there now and, and not then. I have no idea what that means. Most people ought to have allotments. It's part of uh, reconnecting the sense of connectedness to natural processes, he said. Okay, now I, <laughs> okay, I want to point something out here. Okay, Yesterday, if you were following me on Twitter, one of the subversive microblogging tweets that I sent out covers a particular story that comes to us via the BBC. And uh, the BBC headline reads, What Happened to Global Warming? Okay, so uh, th- I mean this is a little bit awkward. I mean catching uh, Dr. Rowan Williams in a f- in a kind of a theological foxpox. No, that's faux pas, by the way. Uh, it re- let me. What happened? Global warming by Paul Hudson, a climate correspondent of the BBC News. We read. Now this headline may come as a su- a bit of a surprise. So too might the fact that the warmest year recorded globally was not in 2008 or 2007. Instead, it was in 1998. But it's true. For the last 11 years, we have not observed any increase in global temperatures. Let me read that sentence again. In the last 11 years, we have not observed any increase in global temperatures. And our climate models did not forecast it. That's because they were all working from the bogus data from Al Gore's theories. Um, Even though... Man-made carbon dioxide, the gas thought to be responsible for warming our planet, has continued to rise. So what on earth is going on? Climate change skeptics who passionately and consistently argue that man's influence on our climate is overstated say they saw this coming. They argue that there are natural cycles over which we have no control that dictate how warm the planet is. But what is the evidence for this? Well, during the last few decades of the 20th century, our planet did warm quickly. Skeptics argued that the warming we observe was down to the energy from the sun increasing. After all, 98% of the Earth's warmth comes from the sun. That's right. The the big ball of fire in the sky, that's where all all but 2% of our warmth comes from. 
But research conducted two years ago and published by the Royal Society seemed to rule out solar influences. The scientists' main approach was simple, uh, to look at solar output and cosmic ray intensity over the last 30 to 40 years and compare these trends with graph for global average surface temperatures, and the results were clear. Warming in the last 20 to 40 years can't have been caused by solar activity said Dr. Piers Forster from Leeds University, a leading contributor to this year's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But one solar scientist, Piers Corbin, from uh, Weather Action, a company specializing in long-range weather forecasting, disagrees. He claims that solar-charged particles impacted, impact us far more than is currently accepted, so much so, he says, that they are almost entirely responsible for what happens to global temperatures. He is so excited by what he has discovered that he plans to tell the international uh, scientific community at a conference in London at the end of the month. I'm sure they're actually going to take up rocks and stone him for this heresy. Anyway, so why do I read that little, uh, at least that segment of the story uh, from the BBC about the fact that the Earth over the last 11 years has not, I repeat, has not uh, been warming, but has actually been, uh, well, cooling um, despite uh, Al Gore's running around like Chicken Little claiming that the sky is falling, um, what does this have to do with the Rowan, Rowan Williams thing? Well, here's the deal. Rowan Williams is telling people in the UK they need to grow their own vegetables and not have peas from Kenya flown in uh, during the winter months because the carbon footprint is too high, to which I basically say... Well, no, science doesn't agree with you, Dr. Williams. It's nice of you to be concerned about the planet and everything like that, but your concerns are not based in real science anymore uh, because the whole global warming thing's a crock anyways. And now we've, now we've got the real problem. Are you ready? Okay. He specifically talked about the carbon footprint of flying in peas from Kenya into the UK, which leads to this question. What's more important, that we keep a low carbon pr- footprint uh, to stave off a problem that we actually have no uh, control over? Or uh, do we go ahead and let the farmers there in Kenya, that would be Africa, notice Africa is a poor nation, let them starve and let the, and basically because no one's going to buy their crops. So it, basically if people follow what Dr. Williams has said, um, they're not going to save the planet because the planet doesn't need saving, but they are going to end up creating economic problems for those farmers in Kenya who won't be able to sell their peas. Uh, And as a result of it, we're going to have more poverty in Kenya. And uh, and so, you know, this is just ridiculous. Um, The whole global warming thing is just absolutely a farce. On October 10th, Saturday of of this past week, my... I was in Minnesota, and I got snowed on. Snowed on. There was snow. Look at the Pirate Christian Radio Mobile on my Facebook page. October 10th, global warming, my foot. And people say, oh, no, we're not talking about global warming anymore. We're talking about climate change. Yes, I believe in climate change. Are you ready? Here we go. Summer is hot. uh, Fall is cool. Winter is cold. And uh, spring is uh, cool again. The, the, The climate changes during the seasons. And by the way, the Earth has been warming since the um, the last ice age ended. Is anyone complaining about the fact that there are that there no longer is a big glacier covering Great Britain and most of uh, New England of the New England states? Do you if you know anything about the history of this planet that during the ice age 
I think most, if not all, of Great Britain was covered by a glacier, as was large portions of the New England states. And is anyone complaining about the fact that the earth warmed up in order to melt those glaciers so that people can have their homes in New England and Great Britain? Just, you know, I'm just asking the question. <sighs> I tell you, you just, <sighs> people need to use the brains that God has given them. Anyway, so, uh, that's, that's the, uh, the gist of my, uh, so Dr. Rowan, Rowan Williams, the way, the subline, you know, uh, if, if people in England need to grow their own food and uh, create more poverty in Kenya. That would be the unspoken headline there. All right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, please, please feel free to email me. You can at uh, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is, well, you know, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection? was a hoax. Well, that's the premise of the book A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Kitchen Source as one of our featured advertisers. 
Since 1996, Kitchen Source has been the leading online retailer of kitchen, bathroom, patio, and home accessories. Time and experience has allowed Kitchen Source to select some of the finest quality merchandise from top manufacturers around the globe, and they are pleased to continually add to their vast product selection in order to offer you the best home products. If you'd like to find out more about Kitchen Source, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash kitchen. That's right, piratechristianradio.com forward slash kitchen. And then when you land on that homepage, click on the friendly web banner that will take you to the Kitchen Source website. And remember that a portion of all of your purchases at Kitchen Source goes to support the work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash kitchen today. All right, we're back. Hour number two, fighting for the faith straight ahead here. Making programming edits as we speak. Turns out I did over-prepare. I think I do it every program now. I Maybe I'm just talking too much. <laughs> I, I have noticed that uh, we radio guys have a tendency to be verbose. All right. Um, real quick, I wanted to. You know, I'm looking at uh, what I'm going to do here. I'm going to save Romans chapter nine until tomorrow. I'm going to talk real quick. I I wanted to get to this. Uh, great numbers do not make the church, and also quickly talk about the conservapedia seeks to eliminate leo- liberal bias from the Bible. I don't have to read the entire story, but uh, I just want to weigh in on it. Uh, Scott Deekman, if you're not familiar with his blog, he has a fine blog, fantastically fine, fine fine, wonderful blog named Stand Firm. You can find it at stand-firm.blogspot.com. Let me read that again. Stand-firm.blogspot.com. It's a a blog that, if you are one who likes to follow blogs, this is a good one to actually get the RSS feed and and catch uh, whatever Scott's writing about. He does some fine apologetic work. And uh, this this little uh, post that he put up, uh, uh, yesterday. It, it's called Great Numbers Do Not Make the Church. Uh, let me read this. Dr. Ron M. Garwood, quoting Luther in his essay, The Nature of the Church with Reference to Its Structure, presented to the Wyoming District Convention this year, said, Great numbers do not make the church. We must look to the word alone and judge on the basis of that. For only those who embrace the word are the ones who will be as immovable forever as Mount Zion. Even though they are few in number and very contemptible in the eyes of the world, the church is a daughter born of the word. Therefore, whoever loses the word and instead eagerly looks to influential persons ceases to be the church and lapses into blindness. Neither numbers nor power will do him any good. Those who keep the word, as did Noah and his family, are the church, even though they be very few in number. Oh, great quote, and excited to pass that along. Again, Scott Diekman's blog is Stand Firm, stand-firm.blogspot.com. Definitely worth uh, you know perusing and reading uh, as we go along. Now, real quick, uh, this is from the uh, Christian Post. This is Aaron J. Leekman writing, uh, conservapedia seeks to eliminate liberal bias from the Bible. Now, this might sound well-meaning, and you think, yeah, well, let's go get them. Well, hang on a second here. 
The fundamentalists behind the conservative family-friendly version of Wikipedia have launched an effort to eliminate what they see to be liberal bias within modern-day Bible translations. The editors of Conservapedia claim that as of 2009, there is no fully conservative translation of the Bible. <gasps> Gasp. Uh, sorry. <clears throat> that satisfies the 10 guidelines that their project will translate in accordance with, in accordance with including thought-for-thought thought translation without corruption by liberal bias, avoidance of unisex gender-inclusive language, and other modern emasculation of Christianity, use of power, new, uh, powerful new conservative terms, and use of modern political terms, among others. The only Bible translation Conservapedia editors seem to respect is the King James Version, which they said could be used as the baseline for developing a conservative translation without requiring a license or any fees. Okay, now, I don't need to read any more. Here's the problem, okay? Quit with this conservative-liberal dichotomy when it comes to the Bible. Serious. Quit it. All right? Real simple. The goal of a, any good confessional Christian when it comes to translation work is what does the text say and how can I convey that most accurately into the, the target language I am trying to translate into. Now, yes, translators have biases, but it's also important to note that many, many of the uh, the translations that we have in English are not the result of a singular person making a decision regarding the translation. That there are committees that work on these translations, like the ESV and the NASB, and I would not say that either of them suffers from liberal bias. And you don't start out with the premise that we're going to make a Bible that's conservative. Because that's basically saying that you basically think a priori that your particular uh, way of viewing the world is exactly what's going to be found in the Bible. No, you have to let the Bible speak and without any of the, the lenses. Any of the lenses. And uh, it sounds like they're going to try to come up with a thought-for-thought -thought translation that's based on the King James Version. Um, something to keep in mind, the King James is not the original languages, and uh, the King James actually has some problems. Now, it's a fine translation. I, I, it was my first, it was the first Bible I learned on. Okay? And I have good friends who still use it in their preaching. I do not have a problem with the King James. The thing is, the King James can't be a baseline for nothing. The, the original languages have to be the baseline. So I, this, this conservative uh, Bible that they seem to be worried about, for heaven's sakes, uh, one of the things that I'm reminded of is that uh, when I actually share the gospel with Jehovah's Witnesses, do you know what translation I use to do it? The, the New World translation. Absolutely true. You, I, I take the Bible out of their hands and I use, it, I use that sword against them. I am not kidding. The, why? Because... Um, why am I able to do this? Because despite the best efforts of the of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, um, they have not been successful at eliminating the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name from the New World Translation. And it's it's a terrible translation. I mean, it makes all kinds of blatantly false 
tra- this all kinds of blatantly false translations uh, in the New World Translation, especially as it pertains to the deity of Christ. But I don't need to prove the deity of Christ per se. I got to preach the gospel, and I use their Bible to do it. So um, I, this, this idea that uh, the current modern translations are suffering from liberal bias. I'm sorry, I'm just not buying it. I have a degree in biblical languages, and I don't see it. I, you know, you know, it's. Oh, sorry. All right. Well, we're. I'm not going to play the. Well, should I play the good, the bad, the ugly? Maybe I should. It's it's a lecture of sorts, and it is a. Here, I'll I'll do this. Here y'all thinking, oh, you're cheating, Rosebro. Uh, I know. <laughs> yeah, because you're going to be playing and review. Well, I'm not going to review it per se because I don't need to interrupt myself. But I'm going to be playing the uh, the audio from the adult Sunday school lesson from this past Sunday uh, at Twin City Fellowship in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. That's actually in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, near right near St. Uh, Minneapolis cold, blustery day there. Um, snow the day after, too, by the way. Um, and uh, this is Bob Dewey and I giving a, a one-hour lecture, flight over the battlefield, if you would, uh, talking about the primary doctrinal and theological categories of the emergent church and why it's not biblical. So, uh, with that in mind, uh, let, let's kill the ukulele band, will we? I don't mean to kill them personally. I'm just, just turning off the music. Sorry. <clears throat> yeah, I, I wasn't uh, asking for violence against the ukulele folks playing the good, the bad, the ugly. I, I promise. <laughs> I, I really enjoy that uh, particular uh, version of the uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. Okay, so without any further ado, here is uh, Bob DeWay and myself doing a tag team, team Sunday school lesson at Twin City Fellowship on the Emergent Church. Here we go. Thank we set it up extra chairs because uh, we've been advertising that Chris, my friend Chris here and I are going to talk about our trip out to La La Land. <laughs> okay, this is Chris Roseboro, and please welcome him. <laughs> Thank you. In God's providence, whenever I go out to listen to heretics, he's there with me. <laughs> I don't know if that's quite a distinction or what. Yeah, we're just gluttons for punishment. Really. <laughs> yeah, so we met Rick Warren together, and then we went out to the Emergent Conference together. So it was really uh, been an interesting time. We spent some time last night out at the Levangs, sort of, how would you say, a debriefing about what all we saw, what all we heard. Chris spent the weekend here in, in Minneapolis at another Emergent event. He heard 21. Well, you only listened to 16, did I? Yeah, I only listened to about 16 or 17, and you helped talk me off the ledge. I was going to jump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had to get out of there. He said he was about ready to jump until I talked him off the ledge. <laughs> 16 messages by heretics, one after another after another. Yeah, I, I was referring to it as apostasia palooza. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, we have a little outline here that we're going to follow, and I'm going to let Chris start. We're going to talk about what we know now about Emergent from having not only read the books of the Emergent people, but been to their conferences, their seminars, talked to their leaders, and firsthand understood what they're saying and why they're saying it. So, 
Chris is going to talk about theological principles that we have and how it would be totally different than theirs. So go ahead, Chris. Right. Those of you who have studied or tried to understand the emergent church at all, when it came out, it was like trying to nail jello to the wall. You could not really understand where they were coming from. And Bob actually did a fine job of being able to pull down the Klingon cloaking device so we could figure out what this thing is. And when we talk in theology, every theology, every church, every, every denomination has what we call a material and a formal principle. These are just tools of ways of describing theology in a way that you can get to the heart of the matter. But think of it this way. Theology is three-dimensional. Every theology has a center and something that really keeps that center moving, and then everything else aligns itself according to that center. For instance, in Reformation churches, churches that follow the Protestant Reformation, what we call the material principle, the center doctrine, really focuses in on Christ and him crucified for our sins. Or you can put it this way, the, the central doctrine, the material principle, is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Now, the second part of that, that it would be the fuel for that material principle. How do you know that that doctrine is true? What's the authority within a particular structure? And that's called the formal principle. And for churches of the Reformation, and I would say for Christianity, it's always been Scripture alone. The idea that it's not God's Word plus what the Pope says, it's God's Word alone. Or it's not God's Word plus the liver shiver you had yesterday and the goosebumps that came about as a result of some bad beef that you ate that you thought was the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, it's God's Word alone. Now... With the emergence, it's been very difficult figuring out what their material and formal principles are, partly because it's not what you would expect. Funny enough, their material principle actually follows more along the lines of what you would expect from an end times eschatological cult. Mm-hmm. And uh, their material principle is this idea, they call it the theology of hope. And it's, their, it's based on their eschatology. And the theology of hope basically sounds something like this. The good news is good news for everybody and when Christ returns, it's going to be good news for everybody. It, and you say, well, what does that mean? You know, is God going to come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, as the ecumenical creeds say, as the scriptures say, as, you know, that sheep and the goats judgment thing that Jesus talks about said? And they would say, well, we hope not. You know, they think that God is doing something so spectacularly wonderful that everybody's saved. It's like... Entropy is going to stop. The Garden of Eden is going to arrive again. And we need to get on board. See, God's recreating the world. And we've got to find where God is working so that we can help God realize his dream for the world. Okay? That's, yes. that's their material principle. That's at the heart of this thing. And that's what, the, regardless of what denomination the emergent people are in, that seems to be the common thread and the center of their belief. And so you, you could say, well, that sounds like universalism. It is. It is. It is. It is. Um, and then their formal principle, what, what, how do they come to this authority? Well, first of all, they have a highly critical view of the Bible. They still hang on to higher criticism and the idea that, that really in the Bible we're not getting histor- historical stories like, you know, that whole Genesis poem. If you believe it's literal, that may be okay with, for you, but I, I may not think that that's really literal, and, and we can just, you know, well, let's take a look at the poetry of it and the, and the things that are going on. That's the, you know, so Jonah, Jonah wasn't really in the belly of a big fish, you know, things like that. But they have a kind of spiritual thing to it. But the most important part is, is that they believe that the Holy Spirit is 
really kind of speaking to them to make them understand the Bible. And it's such a way that they trust more in this subjective idea of the Holy Spirit guiding them in, in their ideas than they trust the Word of God. In fact, they, they constantly are attacking systematic theology, mm-hmm. uh, church dogma, and things that, you know, that summarize what Scripture teaches. Amen. And Chris picked up this book. The two of us went to, at Chicago, we went to a workshop led by this John Frankie. Now, that's a guy that I quote in my book, along with his co-author, Stanley Grins. And so it was interesting to hear this guy in person. Yeah. Because they're, what they're known for is this postmodern approach to theology. It's called Manifold Witness. Now, the thesis of this book is that the Holy Spirit even in the Bible and beyond the time of the Bible, has always been promoting plurality of truth. Okay, what do they mean by that? Well, that the Bible, they say, is incoherent. We were at a a workshop where the guy says, the Bible is incoherent. Okay, and Frankie says, but that's not a problem because of language games, which is a thing in theology from this Wittgenstein that says that every group has their own little language and they really aren't compatible with anybody else's. And so they would say that Isaiah or Jeremiah or Moses or Luke had their own language games, and that's the reason they were incoherent with each other. And we were sitting there almost jumping out of our shoes. Yeah. I was looking for a barf bag. but <laughs> So we're, we're going, what, what? I mean, the absurdity of that claim, when you really understand the Bible and know the Bible, the thing that is marvelous that tells us that the Bible is inspired is the fact of its coherence. That all of these authors over all of these years, it's unbelievable how Genesis agrees with the Revelation and all the way through. Right. Well, even Jesus himself, red letters you know, for the Campolo crowd, says that Jesus prays, Lord, sanctify them in your truth. Thy word is truth. Yeah. They have a completely different concept than Jesus. They contradict Jesus straight up. Yeah, and so they're saying that because in church history you have all these churches with different ideas, therefore you can't expect unity, you can't expect coherence, you can't expect a common understanding of truth that comes from the Bible to the church, but you have the Holy Spirit leading, purposely leading the church to plurality, meaning incoherence and differences. And that that's a good thing. That's his thesis. That's a good thing. Okay, so we listened for, I don't know, an hour and 15. Mm -hmm. And finally, couldn't take it anymore, and finally got to a time for a discussion. And here's all these emergent people with their laptops sitting there and taking notes. Lattes and soul patches. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so Chris said something this first. He said, well, this sounds like what I heard from the Dalai Lama. Yeah, exactly. I, I, if you all remember uh, last March, the Dalai Lama went to Seattle for the Seeds of Compassion event, and Rob Bell was there. And one of the Buddhist nuns who was on the dais with the Dalai Lama asked the Dalai Lama about how come there's all these different varieties of religions that seem contradictory. And the Dalai Lama sitting there, hmm. The, the, the Buddha wanted it this way. You know, they, they all seem contradictory, but the Buddha, in his wisdom, has all these things that look contradictory, but they all have the same result. It, that's exactly what the emergency are teaching. Yeah, and, and Chris told him, that's what you're saying, that's the thing Dalai Lama said. Yeah. They didn't, I don't know what they said, they didn't care about that. No, they, they, they just brushed that one off. So then I jumped in, and I said, for one thing, I said the Bible is not 
contradictory in the Bible's coherent. It's not incoherent. That's just flat out not true. And the second thing I said was this. If the Holy Spirit was intending there to be all these plurality of ideas, why did Paul spend all of his time going around stomping out plurality? They could have had a plurality in Galatia. Paul would have just said, go ahead and have your other gospel. They could have had plurality in Colossians, in Colossae, if Paul would have allowed the Colossian heresy. They could have had plurality throughout the New Testament if Paul hadn't been fighting for the unity of the gospel. And I said, that's, that stands as evidence against their thesis. Yeah, and at that point, guys were just closing their laptops yeah. and walking away. They People didn't want to engage in an emergent conversation with Bob. So. Yeah, so as I started a conversation, they closed their laptops, they were offended, they walked out, a bunch of people. And then he said, well, I, I understand that some things are wrong. <laughs> he okay. said they have a category for heresy. He said that. Yeah. I'm not saying we don't have a category for heresy. He yeah. insisting. And then somebody asked about the Unitarians. Yeah, what did they say? And he, and he said, well... Yes, the Unitarians, their theology is problematic. <laughs> that was about as bad as you could say. Ooh, that's a scathing rebuke from the Mergers. <laughs> the reason they say the Unitarians are problematic is because the Trinity is a huge issue in emergent theology. And we found that out by listening to Moltmann, Jürgen Moltmann, for three days. And let me explain why the Trinity, that's one of our... Points, and I want to get back to a little bit about the Holy Spirit leading us to diversity. They have what they call the principle of relationality, right? And so Jurgen Moltmann's idea is this that because the Trinity is the way God is, that always from all eternity within God there's a principle of relationality. And so as the Holy Spirit whom they call she, by the way, and the Father and the Son are in relationship, that is the most important principle to understand about God. Right, and then the big thing is, is that the uh, Trinity is expanding out in concentric circles. It's uh, circles of inclusiveness so that we can participate in that fellowship. Exactly. So the, the Holy Spirit would be expanding, and that's why they're universalist. They are going to draw everything into this relationality principle that's sort of the ontological. I gotta stay away from the nerd fest again. <laughs> we did the first radio show we did, he called it Nerd Fest One. Yeah, we went a little <laughs> cerebral. <laughs> okay, but I mean, the ultimate being of God would be this thing that's trying to draw everything together into this idea of relationality. And so therefore, you can't have anything that ultimately ends up outside of these concentric circles. Right. And so that's why every kind of being, everything in the world, ultimately has to become one with God. And that's your universalist future that's drawing everything toward itself. Right. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It's almost like, in a sense, it's similar but different to uh, nirvana or you know the Brahmin. It, it's a very mystic concept that these folks are promoting. Yes. It's not grounded in scripture. In fact, uh, yesterday's uh, conference, uh, Danielle Schroyer, who is a, a big fan of Moltmann, she spoke for 21 minutes and uh, it basically exegeted the fact that the universe is expanding. You know, because you know, Big Bang, the universe is expanding, and see, that's proof that God is expanding His concentric circles of love to include us all. You bet you didn't know that. Yeah, and then, and then, there was all, <laughs> then there was that guy that wrote a book about evolution that's not out yet that yep. tries to use the theory of evolution to prove that God is 
like they say he is. Right. Because everything is getting better. So they're using biological evolution to try to prove spiritual evolution. And we thought it was interesting on that point. Uh, the, the guy that wrote that book had a chance to be one of the questioners of Moltmann. That's right. And so he got up there and said to Moltmann, okay, if evolution is true, if spiritual evolution is true, how is it that we still have death and decay? Because that would be counter evidence to the whole idea that everything's... And he asked the question like three times. Yep. And all Moltmann could say in response was, well, we have to anticipate a different future. And so that guy was one of the guys that I engaged and yep. told him who I was, that I was one of those hated traditional Christians. And I thanked him for tolerating me at their conference. He had to wear a yellow cross <laughs> on his jacket. <laughs> and so I, ended, I went up and talked to him after he questioned Moldman, and I said, do you believe you got an answer to your question? And he said, no, I did not. Yeah. And then I kind of engaged the guy a little bit, and he suggested to me that by me getting behind a pulpit and opening a Bible and proclaiming the gospel, I'm full of pride and controlling. Okay? And which is what they say, that all preachers that preach the truth are engaged in command and control Mm -hmm. and are motivated by pride. I know all the truth. You have to learn it from me. And so I didn't get angry. I just I said, don't you realize that that's an ad hominem argument? How do you know that I'm motivated by pride, and how do you know that I don't actually love the congregation and believe that the Word of God is the best thing for them? Well, he didn't have an answer to that. But they assume they know that all traditional Christians have bad motives. And that's a fallacious, That's if you took Eric's class, you know that's an informal, logical fallacy. Right. And it's not hard to shoot it down. That's two, two streams in emergent thought, is that confidence is arrogance, is one of their streams, and in their way of thinking, faith actually equals doubt. Okay, so if you, if you really truly have faith, you embrace doubt rather than certainty. And, you know, and it's really easy to deconstruct. If you are ever in a conversation with somebody and you have differing opinions, right? Okay, and you're trying to negotiate this and maybe the conversation's a little bit heated. Which one is the arrogant person and which one is the humble person? Is the arrogant person who says, listen, I'm not going to listen to anything that you say. I know I'm right. Is that the arrogant person? Yes. The humble person is the one who says, you know what? I've listened to what you said. I've thought about it. And you know what? I'm going to acquiesce to what you said because I think you're right. Our approach to Scripture is not that we're arrogantly asserting our ideas. No Christian theologian is ever to assert his own ideas. We have been given a revealed word from God, and we humbly say, I'm wrong, God's word is right. Even when it contradicts my own life and calls me a sinner, God's word is right, I humbly accept that, and then I boldly proclaim that truth, not as mine, but as God's. Amen. Hallelujah. We made some notes of things that we thought were so important that we didn't want to miss them. One of the things that they were saying at this thing with this John Frankie 
was that all we need to know is Jesus, and we need to know the Holy Spirit leads us to Jesus. Now, I want you to be aware of this and understand this. This talk sounds pious. It sounds pious to say we have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit leads us to Jesus. And they were talking like that, and they said, that's all we need to know. So, but they don't define who Jesus is. No, no. Yeah, you don't have a defined Christ who's defined by the Scripture with this is Christ, this is not Christ. So at the, when I finally got a chance to say something, one of the, this was the thing that really made the notebook snap shut and people walk out. <laughs> I said this. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 4, it warns us about another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. If there is such a thing as another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel, how does it work to just say the Holy Spirit leads us to Jesus? You could have the wrong Holy Spirit, and you could be going to the wrong Jesus. Boy, that, that offended them. Oh, yeah. That, that offended them. Because they're all creating Jesus in their own in the image they want him to be. And funny enough, their Jesus looks a lot like Gandhi with a beard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well... And their Holy Spirit is she, so then it seems like their Holy Spirit is a goddess. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's unbelievable. Well, that, that's the problem is because it's all subjective. Yeah. So we would say the same thing. Now, they, and he, what he retorted to me on that one was, well, you believe the Holy Spirit opens people's eyes? Yeah. Which I do. But see, they're making a category here, and that's how people deceive other people is by shifting categories uh, in the middle of the conversation and you're really talking about two different things. Now, let me explain the category shift. When a, a traditional Christian who believes that salvation is by God's grace and the solas of the Reformation that we were talking about as our principles, believes this, that the Bible means what it says and that any good person trained in linguistics, languages, literature, whether they're a Christian or not, can read the Bible and see what it claims to be saying. Okay? But to actually appreciate in faith what's being revealed to us is something the Holy Spirit does. Right. And Luther, I know Lutherans are not necessarily conservatives up here. I understand that. There are heretical nephews and cousins. But Luther basically would talk about the fact that a child with the Bible is more powerful than a pope. Okay, and the idea there is is that you can know what God's word says and what it teaches. Yes. And and if somebody contradicts it, they're wrong. God's word's right. It's very understandable. Absolutely. So what we would say is this: the Holy Spirit isn't giving us some new information that would be apart from Scripture, or the Holy Spirit isn't telling us the Scripture says something that it doesn't say. Right. But the Holy Spirit allows us to have, he, he takes off the spiritual blinders so that when we hear the gospel, rather than being offended by it, mm-hmm. we see it as the wisdom of God. Right. And this actually falls into the Reformation category of what, what is saving faith. Yeah. And, you know, demons, by the way, know all the historical facts of the Bible to be true, but they're not saved. Okay, so in the Bible we have knowledge and we have historical data. And saving faith is, is that thing that's wrought by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel, the means of grace. Amen. Where you say that this historical event, Jesus Christ dying on a cross, scourged, beaten, having a crown of thorns, 
pressed into his head. That's a historical event. But saving faith comes through the Holy Spirit that says, he was dying on the cross in my place for my sins because that's what I earned because of my sinful, wretched rebellion against God. That only comes through the Holy Spirit. Right. But they would say the Holy Spirit might be leading us to anything. Yeah, anything. Yeah, so they don't, so they don't talk about the gospel. We never heard the gospel once that whole weekend in Chicago. And so their concept of the Holy Spirit leading us to the truth means the Holy Spirit leads them to whatever they want to believe. Yeah. And there was no discussion about exactly who was Jesus Christ. No sin, no yeah. judgment, yeah. No. no wrath of God. What would you think their doctrine... You, you were talking about this last night, Chris. After you heard the 2121 conference, which was 21 women authors talking... Yeah, most of them women pastors. Yes. Yeah. Okay. What is their concept of sin? I don't even know if they have a category for it. Their category for sin kind of, kind of goes along the lines of there's bad things happening in the world, injustices. For instance, nasty capitalist uh, corporations are exploiting child labor and, and the sex trade and things like that, and we can't be particip- We need to feel we've got to be guilty about the fact that this our evil way of life is causing other people to suffer. Yeah, you were actually saying that they were being told to feel guilty about having cell phones. Right, you've you got to feel guilty about your cell phone because the minerals that were mined for your cell phones might have been mined in a third world nation and uh, there was a kid who was working in a dark, dank mine with only a candle and somebody beating them with a whip and you know, so that you can have that cell phone. Yeah, okay, so what happens then, and I saw that when I was in seminary, you get this diffused idea of sin that's about what somebody else is doing somewhere, and that if I'm against what somebody else is doing somewhere, then I can feel a little better about myself. But they never think about their own sin against the holy God whose moral law they've broken. And so what Chris heard yesterday was that, and we heard with Moltman, there's nothing wrong with homosexuality. Nothing. And Moltman says homosexuality is neither a sin nor a crime. And so God's moral law that would indicate to us that we have specifically transgressed things that God has revealed to be wrong, right. such as the law and the gospel, the Ten Commandments, and those things are not even to take in seriously. Right. But they, they, what's funny, though, is that you're, quite, you're probably sitting there going, wait a second, the Bible speaks so clearly about these things. How can they just ignore it? Well, Moltmann kind of gave an example of, of, the, of a critique that they use to get rid of clear passages of Scripture that they don't like. They would say, oh, that Paul, if you just read Paul, he contradicts himself all the time. You can't even know what he's saying. And so when you've got two contradictory passages, for instance, we read in Paul that in Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. You know, we, we say, okay, that's one statement. And then you've got another statement over here that he doesn't allow a woman to, uh, to, to speak with authority in the church. And so it seems like we've got a contradiction. Well, here's how you resolve it. All you've got to do is ask, which statement is closer to Jesus, and then go with that one, and you can ignore the other one. Yeah, we heard him say that. So then what happens, now this is, what we're describing, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is this. This is what the theological liberalism looks like in the 21st century. Yeah. And one of the things that Chris and I have discussed, as we kind of, every, every single day after we listen to this, 
we'd go out and get something to eat and then try to regain our sanity. (laughs) (laughs) Again, you know, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Pastor Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Off the cliff. (laughs) So anyhow, we... uh, and so one of the discussions that we came back to a lot of times is the fact that theological liberalism as it was in 1920 is dead. Yeah, they're the grandchildren of uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick. Yes. And what, if you remember modernist liberalism, vis-a-vis Harry Emerson Fosdick, think of the uh, modernist uh, uh, fundamentalist debate within the Presbyterian Church back in the 1920s. Uh, you have the modernist liberals on one side, Harry Emerson Fosdick. If you it, go online and read the sermon, Shall the, yeah. shall the fundamentalists win? Yeah, that's his Google famous. that. Shall the fundamentalists win? And it'll really give you an outline for the thinking of modernist liberalism. But how that plays out is, is that they buy into continental European higher criticism, and as a result of it, the Bible now is reduced to mythology. Jesus Christ didn't really raise from the dead. That's a metaphor for something. Uh, miracles didn't really happen. That's a metaphor for something. Because in our modern society, with our new knowledge and scientific progress, we've learned that a miracle is just not possible. <laughs> Therefore, we can't trust the Bible. So what we're going to do is we're going to blend Christianity and the Bible with these new modern ideas. Well, what happens is, is that that runs its course, so by the middle of the 1990s, you have books being written about how the mainline denominations who have bought into this, have all, they're all dying. You know, and it, it's the worst of all worlds. The Bible is mythology and stifling liberal legalism, because they, they have a pietism of their own. It's just, you know, so what happens is, is that's dying. Well, the, what they're looking for in the emergence of the postmodern era, is a way to embrace the spiritual but still hang on to some of these postmodern ideas. And the liberal ideas. Right, and they're liberal ideas. So what the emergent church is, it's an upgrade in the liberal software. This is liberalism 2.0. And it has some spiritual elements to it, and it has some features of the old liberalism, but it's, it's still pretty much the same animal. Yeah, their ethos is still basic liberalism. Yes. But... They have spirituality. See, when I was in a liberal church in the 1950s, all we had was the ideas. Be a good Samaritan. We can't know about the resurrection. We can't know about heaven and hell. The Bible can't be trusted other than some of the red letters, right? Like uh, Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount. That. The good Samaritan was... And so my concept as a young lad in church was that Christianity meant being a good citizen. And if your neighbor's car got stuck in the ditch, you got the tractor and pulled him out, which is what we did, okay, on the farm. Now, there was no spirituality to it, none. It was just ideas. The new liberalism is charged with spirituality, but it's a pagan spirituality. Absolutely pagan. Yeah, they've embraced monastic mysticism. Okay, if you're a monk and you're trying to earn your way to heaven through your uh, your monkery, it's a valid word. Through your monkery, one of the things that the monks practice is a practice called the lectio divina, and so that you would experience God with by climbing a spiritual ladder. Now, I don't know what they made this ladder out of. I don't know if they went to the Home Depot and got some spiritual ladder supplies, but it's only a fourfold ladder, and the idea is, is by meditating on God's Word, but it's not meditating the way you and I would think. When we talk about meditating, we open up God's Word and really dig into it and try to understand what it says. With them, you basically, the Bible is like a roulette table. You spin the wheel, close your eyes, boom! 
You look, okay, now we're on this page, and what you do is you kind of scan it until a word pops out at you. And that a word or phrase, is that popping out at you, is obviously the Holy Spirit trying to tell you something. Okay? Forget what the content of the page you're on says. And so we're here, it says, Judas hung himself. Okay? And I don't like that one. But you, so what happens is, is you, 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 you let the word or phrase pop out at you, and then the, that thing you meditate over and over, almost like a, 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 a chant, a, a mantra. You know, you say it over and over and over again, and then you're climbing the ladder. And at the top of this meditation, you can experience God. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, and so then you get the labyrinth. and uh, They use art to do this. Oh, yeah. They icons. Have, yeah, icons. Are, they, were, they have this pagan art that is really weird. And while we were in Chicago, there was a lady creating an art piece. Yeah, she was a uh, liturgical artist. Yeah. And so they had a camera shooting down on her because it was laying up on the stage, and she's doing the art the whole time the meeting's going on. As the Holy Spirit inspires her. Yes. And then they were shooting that up on a video camera on a screen, so we could watch her create this art. And it was just... What would you call that art? What is that? Ugly. Ugly. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Well, see, tell us what you really think. <laughs> Anyhow, it was just weird. Well, there yeah. was just there was those three. I think it was it, it, a tree. It, started, it was a tree stump. It was a tree stump, the stump and then came out stuff of it. kind of growing out of it. It was the idea of emergence. I yeah, think. she did one yesterday that uh, looked flowery with with the words "your story" in it. And it, yeah. it, see, it's all about your story being caught up in God's story. Okay, means. that will lead us to another important topic, okay? Yeah. We want to talk about panentheism. Yes. Whether you've heard of that or not, it's a category you better become familiar with because not only is it the emergent idea, it is uh, blending in with these New Age people that go on Oprah Winfrey that we're going to talk about at our next conference. So I've been reading the books. I've, I've read Marianne Williamson, Eckhart Tolle, and Rhonda Byrne. Okay? And they're either pantheists or panentheists. And, and I want to describe those two concepts and then explain what it has to do with emergent. Let's start with panentheism. Well, I'll start with pantheism because the other one's sort of an offshoot. Yeah. Pantheism is, can also be, you'll see the term Eastern monism. Monism means that reality is only one. There's only one essence to all reality. That's monism. And pantheism says that that one essence that would describe everything that we think, see, or feel is God. Okay? And in the Eckhart Tolle that I just read and I'm writing an article about is a pantheist. And so in that scheme of things, you have to describe why is there such a thing as evil, why is there categories, why are there different people, why do you see rocks and trees and all that. Well, everything you see is just an illusion. That's maya, illusion. And all of this happened because of insanity in the mind of God. I'm not kidding. I didn't make that up. Now, what happened was God somehow lost consciousness of himself and got infolded into everything there is. And so at some point at the beginning of evolution, according to Eckhart Tolle, God is not even conscious of his own existence. And so their concept of spiritual evolution is that God is gradually regaining his consciousness. 
and that this uh, consciousness of God is in all things, even rocks. Tolle claims that a rock that turns into a crystal is God, uh, the rock becoming conscious. Okay, and so everything is spirit, everything is God, and so the goal for us is to get to the point where we're not conscious of our own ego, our own forms, they talk about, our own distinct being, because that's illusion, that we silence the only way. You can't think about this. If you're thinking about being one with God, then you don't have it, because thinking is bad. Okay? Consciousness is not thinking. Consciousness is when your mind goes dead silent. And so all you have is an experience of your own deity. Now that's what's being taught on Oprah Winfrey and what she's promoting to America. This absurdity, which is an attack against human rationality, an attack against God who created us in his own image. Now, that's pantheism. And ultimately, the goal is to only for, have God and God's consciousness of himself, and there's no categories. All right? That's pantheism. Now, the, some of the emergent get their ideas from pantheism, and that would be Rob Bell, Leonard Sweet, and Brian McLaren. The inspiration for their Theology is from the pantheist Ken Wilber. And Ken Wilber is a pantheistic Buddhist philosopher. And I wrote a chapter about that in my book. Now we're going to talk about what we saw in Chicago. It's a different stream. The, the Doug Paget, Tony Jones, emergent village version of emergent is panentheism, not pantheism. Panentheism. And they described themselves that, did they not? Oh, they sure did. Tell, yeah, tell it, about that. Yeah, uh, I went Danielle. to the pre-conference, the, uh, yeah. the, you know, Moltmann 101. It was not a credit course, though, so I don't get to apply for credits for that. But uh, it, it, that, in that uh, afternoon, they did a flight over the battlefield of Moltmann's theology. And at the end, Daniel Schweyer basically summed it up as Moltmann teaches that you know, he believes in universalistic, panentheistic Hegelianism. Yeah, uh, those are the three categories, and so they openly admit that they're panentheistic. And it, I'm going to have to leave this to Bob because there's a sharp, there's a distinction, but it's hard to see sometimes between the Christian concept of God's omnipresence as opposed to God, uh, panentheism. There's two yeah. different concepts, yeah. and you have to know the difference. But he's yeah, the we, expert. Yeah, well, uh, Chris asked me what that was. And the first time you asked me, I, I didn't feel like I had a good answer. Right. So I spent a couple of days meditating about the scriptures. He was not doing the Lectio Divina. No, I, I stayed right on the ground here. I thought, okay, what is the difference between omnipresence and panentheism? Let me describe panentheism, then I'll tell you what the difference is, because it came to me. Okay? Panentheism says God is in everything. All right? So that God still remains a distinct being. Okay, and so you don't have to say everything is an illusion. You don't have Maya. You have actual persons, beings, rocks, trees, whatever is out here. But God is in everything. All right, now, and so therefore, everything in some sense shares its essence with the essence of God. So God can be discovered in things. Okay, so you're looking in the world, you're looking out the world out here trying to discover God. And, the, and you'll hear emergence say that, and, and Doug Padgett did that in his debate with me. He said, we're looking out here to see what God's doing so we can join it. Yeah. Now, what God's doing is assume from their imagination, because they don't have an inerrant 
infallible scripture to tell them what looks like God and what doesn't. Right. Okay, now, the question that Chris asked is a very good one. What's the difference between the Christian doctrine of omnipresence and Moltmann emergent idea of panentheism, God is in everything, which, by the way, a lot of New Agers believe. It's just a New Age concept. I wrote about this 15 years ago, quoting a guy by the name of David Ray Griffin, and I've noticed that some of the emergents are provingly quote this guy, and he's a total New Ager. All right, here's the difference. Omnipresence is talking about God's spatial relationship to everything. In other words... The Bible, like when David says, where can I go from your presence, and the answer is nowhere, would say that God, there's there's nowhere to go where God isn't, because spatially God is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Okay? Because God is spirit, according to the book of John. Now, that is not what they're talking about. And this was the idea that came to my mind to be able to explain this. And I'm going to have to use a big word, but I'll define it, okay? What they do is they make a category shift and they take the spatial idea and turn it into an ontological idea. Mm-hmm. Hold on. <laughs> okay? That's, I have to use that term because it is the best term in the whole English language to describe what I'm talking about. But we have to have definitions. Ontology is the study of being. So rather than saying the tree out here is not spatially separated from any place where God may be. They're saying the tree out here shares part of its essence with God. In other words, the being of the tree is sharing the being of God. They're not talking about space like we would in Christian theology. They're talking about being or ontology. Now, these guys do this constantly. They're, as you were saying last night, these people are almost all intellectuals. Very smart people. Yeah, very, very intellectual. They've got huge vocabularies. They're well-studied. They know philosophy, theology, and they, they're conversant in just about anything you want to talk about. And that attracts young people. Dear ones, why do you need to know about this? That's a good question you should be asking. Why? Uh, the guy that I met there asked, why did you write a book about it? It says, because traditional Christians don't even know what their children are talking about when they get into this stuff. They come home from, the colleges are just infiltrated with this. Absolutely. I talked to people at Jan's conference yesterday who were telling me the same stories. The colleges are teaching this sort of stuff. And it's it's coming from very intelligent, intellectual type people. And the young people go, wow, my parents don't know all of this. Well, worse, if you go to a purpose-driven church where you're not really taught the scriptures, you have no defense against yeah. this stuff. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what we've been saying. The evangelical church is defenseless against this. Absolutely defenseless. They can't even raise an argument because they're so dumbed down, they, they don't even know what these guys are talking about. Well, their material principle is life change. Yeah. And the merchants have life change, too, so yeah. maybe God's working in them. Yeah. Okay, so back to this idea of panentheism. We would say... And all, all Christian theology has said traditionally, and this comes from Scripture, that God created the universe out of nothing, and that the creation always is distinct from the Creator. Yep. You never blur those two. The Creator remains the Creator, who's transcendent beyond the creation, who's not handcuffed by the creation, who doesn't d- share divine essence with the creation, Because 
this is one of the big problems with pantheism. They equivocate on the term God. Think about that. When they're talking about God, they're not talking about what we are. What is the most basic necessary definition of deity? That, and I talked about this, I think, in my sermon last Sunday. Eternal, non-contingent existence. That means God wasn't created. He exists forever and ever and ever because it's His divine nature to exist. There's a term for that called a seity. Non-contingent means that God's existence isn't dependent on anything outside of Himself. If the whole creation went away, God still would have all of His attributes and He would be lacking nothing. Alright? If you try to ascribe that divine essence, that ontological reality, that this is what God is, this is who He is, this is His being, to anything created... And you're you're trying to share deity, you just equivocated on the term deity. Because everything that's brought into existence, whether it's rocks, trees, human beings, planets, or universes, are contingent and they're non-eternal. So the creation can never have the divine essence of deity. And that brings us to another one of their heresies, theosis. Oh, man. You want to talk about that? Yeah, this is all kinds of fun. On the on the outer fringes of the universe known as emergent, there's an old heresy that's making its way back into uh, Christian thought via these guys, and it's this, it's a doctrine called theosis, and it's this idea that Christian sanctification is actually your deification. Yeah. Yeah. You you become divine. Yeah, that's what theosis means. Yeah. Ascent to godhood. And they were talking about that and promoting it yep. at the conference. Yep. And uh, I thought Moltman was a little... The first time he mentioned it, he said he didn't believe it, and the next day he was promoting it. Yep. And here's the funny thing is, is that uh, Granger Community Church, in their adult uh, Bible study class two weeks ago, um, their teacher was teaching this. So the thing is that these ideas are trickling down into main line, uh, basically megachurches, the you know, purpose-driven megachurches, and these people are embracing these new ideas yeah. as if it's Christianity. They've completely recategorized yeah. everything. I want to talk about something real quick on the panentheism. They have to be panentheists in order for the theology of hope to work, their eschatology to work, because they want, they want to see where God is working, because you know, God has these ever-expanding concentric circles of relational love, and so they want to be able to see God in the other. That's, that's one of their big buzz phrases. We see God in the other. And what they mean by that is we see God working in Islam. Yes. We see God working in Buddhism. We see God working in Hinduism. And if you hold to a biblical worldview, you say that's not possible right. because those people are idolaters. God will not work in their religion or do anything you know, except for call them to repentance. And they think that you, you, you see a Hindu guy giving a, somebody a sandwich, that's God working in the other. Because, Absolutely. You know, that's why I say their, God, their Jesus looks a lot like Gandhi with a beard. Yeah, that came up in the debate. One of the main points that Doug Paget made in his opening statement was we, we're open to the other. Because the other, see, if God is in everything, then God is in the other. Now let me make another distinction. And if this is new to you, uh, we don't, uh, what am I going to say? We're committed at Twin City Fellowship to equipping the saints. 
And if we don't equip you to be able to withstand what's going on right outside your door, what's happening to your kids in school, what happens to your nephews and nieces and grandchildren and college kids, then we failed our job. We're not talking about all these big words because it makes us feel better about ourselves. These are the ideas your kids are taught in college, and you need to know what they are because they'll come home and you think they're talking another language. Absolutely. Okay, so panentheism, what, what else is wrong with it? Somebody said to me once when I was talking about this, well, we believe that Christ is in us as Christians. So then, then isn't that sort of panentheism? Let me go back to the category. Christ in us is a relational idea that God has uh, dwells us by the Holy Spirit. It's relational. It's not ontological. What does that mean? We don't share Christ's divine nature because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We always will be creatures. I'd make a lousy God, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I've got a few too many problems for that role. So that's so then again, don't get fooled. Don't, I am totally motivated to warn a church about this, and I'm not, in some ways, wondering how to do it. I mean, Chris yeah. and I were talking last night. How did this end up on our shoulders? Right. I, I think the the normal outlets. I think they're aware of it, but I don't think they realize just how far along this thing has progressed. It's, yeah. I think they think it's a fad that's going to pass away, and I see it as a virus that's being released into the church. And yeah, it's a virus. It's not a fad. Yeah, absolutely. I totally. I don't know how it ended up. We're the ones going to these conferences. We're the ones seeing this, and we're the ones doing radio and blogging and writing about it. And there's a lot of big heavy hitters out there that would be better voices, but they don't seem to see how serious it is. And I don't know why that is. So we're talking about this panentheistic universalism. So God is in everything, and God is drawing everything back into himself in concentric circles. And in the end, everything is in this harmonious relationship with God. So in panentheism, in the end, when everything is as it should be, you still have the the distinctions of categories individuals still have their identity but now they've ascended into godhood right and so they share some in some sense the divine essence with god but they're still creatures whereas pantheism our identity is is illusion as an illusion right and i think they even base part of that on a mistranslation of that passage in peter where it talks about that we are partakers in the divine nature the that greek word there favorite. the greek word is koinonos there and it's really it's not that we're shares. parts it shares it's we're in fellowship you know yeah. right now we have koinonia we're in fellowship but you're not me and i'm not you and i don't have your essence you know that kind of thing yeah. so we have fellowship with the divine nature through our relationship with jesus christ as adopted sons and daughters through what christ did for us on the cross but i am not divine and they, what's funny is they always equivocate. When they, they like using fancy terms, they'll say, well, listen, you know, we're recovering the Imago Dei. And if you want to know what, you know, that's, that, what that really means is that we're sons of God the same way Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah. So you equivocate on the, on the doctrine of Christ and the nature of Christ and the uniqueness of Christ goes away. I mentioned the Sunday in my sermon about that communion service. Maybe you want oh, yeah, to give yeah, your yeah, take yeah, on yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am a very objective guy, not a subjective guy, but uh, that communion service was off the chain. I mean, first of all, it, the liturgy itself was done to jazz fusion. 
you know, which is very postmodern to, to say the least. And the, the, some of the lyrics were, Lord, we release ourselves into the heart of who you are. What does that mean? I have no idea what that sentence means. You know, come meet us in the center of our essence, things like that. And, uh, and it was presided by all these female pastrixes. And, um, and, yeah. By the way, there is no such thing as a female pastor. That animal doesn't exist in scripture. Just want to let you know. So I'm using some synthetic language here. What, uh, the best way I could describe it is pagan love feast is, is the best way of putting it. And I physically felt ill. I did too. I, I mean, I think we ran out of there. It, uh, we stayed until they actually started breaking the bread. Yeah, it, they I, had different words of institution. Uh, yeah, the words of institution omitted the parts for the forgiveness of your sins. They never talk about forgiveness. Yeah, that, that was gone. For, that's one thing, by the way, because we went out and saw Rick Warren talk to him as well. When after that love feast... We talked about it, and both of us came to the same conclusion. Going to Rick Warren's leadership summit was like going to an Amway meeting. Going to the emergent leadership thing was like going to a seance. Yes. Okay, Warren's thing, somebody asked me, well, did Warren seem like he was evil or demonic? I said, no, he's just a you know, guy, you know. I didn't, I didn't sense that. He's just a guy. He's kind of friendly, wants everybody to be his friend. He's car salesman. Yeah, he, they were Bill Clinton. Yeah, right. <laughs> it all depends on what is. is. What is means. <laughs> and, but the, the emergent thing, uh, here's what I'd say about emergent compared to what we saw with Warren. Emergents are more serious. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, and they really are committed to what they are doing. There's an intellectual intensity and discipline that goes with them. And one of the things I, I, I'm absolutely convinced of in my conversations with many of them at these, both these conferences is that the people who have half a brain, who look at this market-driven corporate uh, Fortune 500 version of megachurches, they get washed out of those because they're basically told to buy the product and not ask any questions. And their, in, their intelligence has been insulted. And, uh, and they've tried that whole legalistic, pietistic thing, and it just doesn't work. And so what they've done is they basically said, we're leaving you and we're going to go create our own Christianity over here in our own sandbox, and it's going to be intellectual. It's, and it's going to be intellectually satisfying, and we're not going to be insulted by how you've dumbed down the Bible. So they will do this with open Bibles and very lucid arguments, quoting philosophers and church fathers. And you're thinking, I'm home because I'm with a bunch of people who at least have a brain and will have a conversation with me. Whereas a lot of these purpose-driven guys, they won't talk to you because talking to you could threaten their bottom line. I mean, it's all about how much product they're selling and market share. They'll talk to you because they want to engage you and pull you in because they know you're dissatisfied with the shallowness of Christianity. Right. And so, in a sense... I could say the emergent thing was more intellectually satisfying or honest mm-hmm. than purpose-driven, but spiritually it's w- even more wicked. Yeah. Pietism? The emergents are pietists? They're, they're a leftist weird pietist. Way. Yeah, a le- he called them a leftist pietist. In other words, a, a pietist would have legalistic rules, do this, do this, do this, do this, and then we'll count you in good stead with us because yeah. you're, you're, you're lining up to our ideas. And I would say it this way, is, is that you know, uh, traditional pietists are, are legalists. You don't smoke, don't chew, and go out with girls that do. Leftist pietists, uh, they, don't eat, they eat dolphin-free tuna. Um, they, they, uh, <laughs> they have cell phones that don't have tungsten in it. 
and they're green and environmentalists. It's a different list, but it's still a form of pietism. Yeah, that's true. It's a social, kind of a socialist. Right. They talk about social justice or social conscience and stuff like that, which is your traditional liberal right. ethos or ideas. So what, what's the bottom line here? The bottom line is that this postmodern emergent idea is a hugely influential, infectious virus. This, the first thing it's doing, and it's already mostly happened, is destroying the entire evangelical educational system. I heard from a guy who's a professor in Japan, who's a CIC reader and listens to our sermons, who was at a conference, and he was speaking about the theology of Jonathan Edwards. Mm-hmm. And he says, at that conference, this, this guy Frankie had a the book called uh, Beyond Foundationalism with Stanley Grins that sort of articulated post, all things postmodern for the evangelical. He said at the conference, the Christian college professors, there were hundreds of them there, yep. one after another was praising Frankie and Grins for saving e- evangelicalism from irrelevance. Okay, so the, the educational elite are just flying into this. I talked to another college professor who believes like we do, who told me that in the college where she teaches, this was before my book was published, she says, I don't even understand what my colleagues are talking about. They were hiring, as the baby boomers are retiring and, and the older professors are retiring, they're hiring these younger yeah. professors, all coming in postmodern, all coming in thinking emergent. And they're teaching your children, okay? And, and, and I've talked to parents that said, I don't even know what my, my... I've talked to several people lately who said that their kid went off to seminary and came back a non-Christian, rejecting the Bible, rejecting everything they've been taught. And, and she, I sent her my book when it first came out, and she said she read it four times, and now she understands what they're talking about. But it doesn't change the fact that's who's teaching your children. This stuff is infectious, and it's, uh, the children are attracted to it, I think, because they, many of them grew up in evangelical churches that did not teach them true Christian doctrine or a biblical worldview. The parents in our evangelical movement for the last 40 years have been worried about one thing, that my kids stay out of trouble and they have Christian friends. If the church entertains them, good. If the church is fun and relevant, good. They, the parents didn't even care if their kids are taught a Christian worldview. They just want to keep them nice little Christian kids out of trouble and send them off to college with brains not filled with the truth of God's Word. And then when they get to college, these intellectual, stimulating, yep. wise people that have all of this worldly wisdom are teaching them, and the kids are just blown away from their Christianity, and they're sucked into the postmodern. That's what's going on. The pledge that we've made here at Twin City Fellowship is that if your children are taught here, we're going to make sure they come out of here with a Christian worldview. We're not here to entertain your kids. We're here to train them so they think like Christians. And I want to thank the people. Thank you. And I I want to thank the people that have been doing the work on armor bearers in the study school and what have you. I saw the latest curriculum that they've created, it is rock solid. Our little seven-year-olds are learning about the doctrine of providence. They're learning about means of grace. They're learning the gospel. Those kids are going to go and hear somebody talk all this panentheistic junk. 
And, and no, it's not, it's not Christian. They can't be Christian. So I don't know how we can get this to be a bigger movement, but I would sure like to see it spread around. Well, we've got to fight on our hands whether we like it or not. Yeah. And so, Chris, I want to thank you as being a co-fighter in this battle. He's been a wonderful <laughs> colleague in this. So... Um, I don't know where the battle goes from here, but we pledge that we'll keep fighting it. Tell, yeah, tell tell everybody about your ministry. Uh, uh, all right, uh, we'll uh, skip that part about telling everybody about uh, my websites. I think we don't want to be too gratuitous there. Anyway, that that was uh, my uh, my lecture co lecture with uh, Bob Dewey at Twin City Fellowships, the adult Sunday school class there this past. Sunday on the emergent church movement, and I hope that you found uh, that that lecture to be uh, well educational and uh, in, in 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 another sense uh, inspiring as far as uh, uh, hopefully getting into the fight. Um, it, we need folks to step into the fight, and how do you step into the fight? By teaching the truth, by proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Uh, contrary to uh, what other s- stuff is being taught out there, sola sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, uh, solus Christus, uh, the uh, the solas of the of the Reformation, which are really the solas of uh, Christianity itself, and uh, in in contradistinction to uh, what's being p- uh, put out there by the emergence. All right, we are rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And if you're finding uh, what we're doing here to be valuable, uh, ask you the question: Would you join the uh, the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew? Um, we are looking for a thousand of our listeners to uh, to sign up to join our crew. And uh, basically, by signing up, your uh, your account is debited six dollars and ninety five cents a month. It's not a it's not a lot of money. It's it's a small amount. Uh, spread across a lot of listeners, and uh, uh, by doing that, that that mere six dollars and ninety-five cents that uh, you know, basically, you think you put it in perspective, six dollars and ninety-five cents can't even buy you a trade paperback book nowadays. I mean, you know, it could buy you a, a matinee movie uh, ticket, but six dollars and ninety-five cents uh, means the world to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Because uh, when we get to a thousand listeners who have joined the Pirate Christian Radio crew. Then we've ensured that on a monthly basis we're meeting the minimum amount of uh, that that we need in order to operate and uh, continue to bring uh, to bring you fighting for the faith in Pirate Christian Radio to to meet all of our monthly expenses, and so you can join our crew by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and when you get there you'll see uh, on the homepage there a friendly yellow button that says join our crew. Click on that and fill out the form and uh, and then on a monthly basis a mere six dollars and ninety five cents would be deducted from your account. And uh, that uh, meets our needs. And if you want to give above and beyond that, you can do that a couple ways. Click on the uh, one of the yellow donate buttons that we have there. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, so what did you think? What did you think? I, I think you heard the gospel in that presentation, too. Um, would love to get your feedback. Uh, you can uh, send me your feedback at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook that's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter my name there is pirate Christian until tomorrow may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for you for you and your sins Amen Amen